conversations with prominent pastors, teachers, and leaders. This is the Pastor Well Podcast from Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Now your host, Dr. Herschel York. Hello and welcome to the Pastor Well Podcast. I'm Herschel York, Dean of the School of Theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and pastor of the Buck Run Baptist Church in Frankfurt. The Pastor Well Podcast is dedicated to helping servants of the Lord Jesus Christ be faithful in ministry. I like to have guests who encourage us, who stimulate our thinking, and today I've got someone who will do exactly that. I want to welcome Nathan Lino, the pastor of the Northeast Houston Baptist Church, to Pastor Well. Welcome, Nathan. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Well, uh, you're a great friend, man. You and I have uh, been in trenches together. and it's, have. It's a, a joy to have you on the podcast. Uh, so you uh, were the... Uh, the, the really the planter of the Northeast Houston Baptist Church. Uh, you've been there 17 years. Tell me about your church. Well, yes, we started it 17 years ago. We had a mother church that seated us, our core group, and some startup capital financially. And we launched in an elementary school, uh, purchased land, built a building, uh, and by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 17 years later, uh, he's still very present in our congregation. The church is uh, very unified uh, the presence of the Lord is uh, manifested. I mean, you can tell he's with us when our church gathers. Uh, we're very focused on just expository preaching, missions, evangelism, uh, caring really well for the members of our church, intentional discipleship. So uh, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, tell me, so uh, about how many folks are in your service each week? Uh, 1,200 or so. 1,200. And you have a, a a project there you call the Jericho Project. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. What are you doing? Yeah, Jericho Project is one of our layers of evangelism, uh, and it falls into our cold call evangelism genre of evangelism. And really, Jericho Project is just old school door to door evangelism what? with a bit of a new twist. That you, you that's uh, you believe that still works? Well, it's working for us. Hey man, uh, I'm with you. We've done it in so many contexts around the world, yeah. uh, and we have yet to find a place it hasn't worked. I think, you know, uh, one of the keys for us has been we train our people really well uh, in that when we get to a door, we're super friendly. We never debate and fight. Right. And we just get to the point. People don't want the guy knocking on their door, beating around the bush before they get to why they're at the door. We just get to the door, say who we are, why we're there. Would you like to hear this, yes or no? That's it. Yeah. You know, uh, as we are recording this, just Saturday, Buck Ron did it. We do a thing we call Reach Frankfurt, and we go door to door. You know, if if nothing else, I don't want anybody within a certain radius of our building who drives by our building saying, well, those people built that big building, and they don't do anything to show me they care about That's me. That's right. If That's nothing right. else— we're going to go knock on their door and let them know we're here and we care about them. That's right. Uh, and that's worth something. Yes. And I don't know what y'all's experience is like, but we rarely have negative experiences. Rarely. At the door. Almost, the, almost the, never. Yeah. The worst we'll have is just someone saying not interested. That's it, right. But no one yells and screams, slams the door. No. And is nasty. I think, I think uh, in the American South, we're so far post-Christian now, we've come full circle and I don't think it's weird to go door to door anymore. The 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 non Christians, the truly unchurched we encounter, yeah, uh, tend to be curious or at least not surprised, right, that we're there. Well, uh, there's something that's happened in our culture. Uh, 
You know, my generation, when we graduated college and got married, uh, we bought houses and we put up privacy fences mm. uh, immediately. You know, we, we all cocooned. My son's generation and after that, you know, these millennials, they're all about community. Yes. They like yes. being in each other's lives. Uh, they they yes. like that sense of connection. So when we go to someone's house and, and we're just there to say we care about you, hey, is there something we can pray for? That's right. Anything, any way we can serve you? They don't mind it. That's right. They're all in. I got to tell you an ex- uh, something that happened just uh, as we record this two days before. Uh, lady team in our church knocked on a door. And said, we're from Buck Run Baptist Church. And the lady's mouth dropped open. And she said, uh, you're not going to believe this. She said, I've been thinking about coming to your church. And I was just now looking at your website. Mm. And while I'm looking at your website, you knocked on, you the knocked door. on my door. Okay, that's and, a divine appointment. It is a divine appointment. And 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 that person saw it that way. Yeah. So uh, I I like it. You know, it's, it's not our only means of evangelism. Sure, it's not it's the primary layer. means. But... Yeah. If you really believe in the sovereignty of God and you believe that God goes before you, why, why would you not do that? Yeah, that's exactly right. But your church does a lot, a lot of things. Uh, I know this because our church has uh, sort of cooperated with you on, on some things. Uh, talk about your ministry uh, to, to pregnant women. Yes. Well, our church uh, owns and operates a physical needs mission in another part of Houston that is an underprivileged area of our city. And one of the ministries in that mission is a pregnancy center. Um, I, th- I would say, you know, I think you just said something like our church has barely participated in this or some kind of language like that a minute ago. That's the understatement of the year. Uh, the truth is, uh, three years ago when Houston flooded with Hurricane Harvey, uh, our mission flooded, as you know, mm. and uh, to the point that we have video footage of fish swimming through the building. I mean, we flooded, flooded. Yeah. Uh, and of course our greatest heartbreak was losing the pregnancy center. It's kind of the crown jewel ministry in that, in that mission. And, uh, Buck Run came and sent, I believe it was two teams back to back. Oh, they're like 14 days worked round the clock. Uh, by the way, uh, in the ensuing months, uh, other churches from around the country sent teams, but my church says to this day, in fact, this past Sunday, I told one of our leaders that I'd be at Buck Run today. And he said, that is the church that did the heavy lifting and the aftermath. Of our so, I mean, from yeah. all the teams that came, Buck Run stood out that's, that's, above and beyond. Well, you know, that makes shoulders. my pastor's heart rejoice. Well, I'm, I'm not blowing smoke. My, yeah. my lay people recognize that. I yeah. mean, y'all, y'all's, the heart of your church was extraordinary. But Buck Run came and uh, that, I mean, the pregnancy center went to rip out the drywall, cut away a lot of the two by four, strip out all the electrical. I mean, everything was lost. And Buck Run came with the teams and worked around the clock. And it was a miracle of Jesus Christ through Buck Run Baptist Church. What a joy. And when you left uh, as a church, the pregnancy center was better by far. It was worth the flood. To get what we got in the aftermath. Praise the Lord. As heartbreaking as it was. And yeah. the, I mean, the Lord is still writing the rest of that story uh, because of Buck Run, because of the way y'all so quickly and with such excellence restored that pregnancy center. Uh, it invigorated the giving to replace the 4D ultrasound machine, which is not extrapolated 4D, by the way. It's real 4D video wow. footage of an unborn baby. I don't wow. know if you've ever seen that kind of footage, but. It's the the details on the baby's face still in the womb is so clear you can see the baby blinking. Wow. 
And so uh, we were able to raise the funding for that 4D machine because of everyone's excitement about how quickly Buck Run restored the center, but at the quality at which it was restored. And then because that 4D machine came in, uh, that we know of, money's been raised for another 12 machines that are now around the nation in places like Baltimore, D.C., Philly, Miami, because of Buck Run. And what y'all came and did. It was well, extraordinary. The Lord is literally yeah, still writing the story. You well, know, it's it's just the way the Lord works, man. When when you go through life just saying, Where can we serve? Where can we help? Where can we alleviate suffering and pain? Where can we take the gospel? Uh, man, the Lord he just takes your little five loaves and two fishes and multiplies them and yeah, does incredible right. things. A friend and I were just talking about that on the way over here, actually, how the, the glorious things that the Lord ends up doing through us in our churches yeah. always just began with a step of obedience that looked minor when we began. Like y'all just yeah. heard about this flooded church in Houston and yeah. we're like, let's send a mission team to Houston. Yeah. The Lord was writing this nationwide story, saving thousands of babies. And, but all That's you knew at the time was just take the step of obedience yeah. in front of you. And it's just amazing how faithfulness, yeah. Praise the Lord. our faithfulness it is. It's a meager offering. Yeah. And well, he is made great in our weakness and smallness. This is the way the Lord works, man. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. It just gladdens my pastor's well, heart. Glory and to God. I'm I'm blessed to pastor people who are just in, you know. Just just loose them and let them go. They're yeah. just in. And it's it's a it's a thrill. You know, uh one of the things that uh, I don't want to uh belabor this, but uh you have an accent that does not sound Texan. <laughs> Uh, you were born in South Africa. Yes. And you grew up there, right? Yeah, fourth generation African. I'm first generation South African. My mom is from what was then Rhodesia, uh-huh. now Zimbabwe. My dad was born in Malawi, immigrated to Mozambique, immigrated to Zimbabwe, immigrated to South Africa. Uh, my dad was an accountant in Rhodesia. And when God called him to be a pastor and the closest seminary was in Cape Town, that's how my parents ended up in South Africa. I was a seminary baby. Really? And then a church in South Africa called him after he graduated, and so we were in South Africa. Yeah, so I'm first generation South African. Yeah, it sounds a lot like Stephen Olford's story. I don't know if you ever heard Stephen Olford you know, tell that he was he was born there. Yes, he was born there. And, I've heard you know many of his sermons. Yeah. I just don't know his bio story. Yeah. Uh, and so you moved to the United States when you were in middle school. Yes. And yes. Uh, what was that like? Was that culture shock? Oh. Oh, I can't even tell you. It was shock and awe down to the smallest of details. We didn't, I mean, we'd go in the grocery store and even though we spoke English, we spoke the King's English. Yeah. And so, you know, we would go into a grocery store and we would ask where the aluminum can of, or tin, we called it tin. Where's an aluminum tin, you know, tin of what have you. And the 16 year old cashier working part-time at you know, Kroger just stares at us with their head cocked and we would go to the grocery store and walk out with nothing. I mean, it was that much (laughs) culture shock. We would go to, you know, middle school and I wouldn't make it through the first period before I'm in the counselor's office just sitting there because I, it's just so the school system is so shockingly different here compared to, uh, over in South Africa. Where did you live? Houston. In Houston. Yes. I ended up planting our church in the community where I went to middle school and high school. Really? Yeah. Wow. And at what age did the Lord call you, call you to preach? Uh, in seventh grade, 
I knew that God had told me clearly I would be in full-time vocational ministry, but I honestly believed I would be a missionary overseas in a UPG because that is my heart to this day. If the Lord let me write the script of my life, I'd be living in North Africa right now. Really? Uh, that really is my passion. I, I, I often feel like a missionary caged in a pastor's body. Mm-hmm. But it was the summer after my freshman year of college that God clarified my calling to be a local church pastor in the States. And I really feel like my calling is to mobilize believers for the nations and to send the gospel where it hasn't gone. Like my job is to build a base that will send. Yeah. I really believe that. Well, you're doing that. Uh, you, um, you, every time I see you, you've got someone with you. Hmm. You're always discipling. You're, you're bringing others along with you and, and helping form them and shape them to send them out. It's an incredible calling, and um, and I think the Lord used you greatly. Um, you met your wife, Nicole, when? Uh, on a blind date, our junior year of college, a blind date that went horribly, and uh, I never thought I'd see her again after. I forgot her name in the middle of the date. Oh, it was it was not Critical a great mistake, experience. Yeah. Ran into my college roommate who knows me well, figured out I didn't know her name, and intentionally asked me to introduce her to him in front of her, knowing I would just stare at her with a blank face. Not it was terrible. It was really bad. Wow! How did you get a second date out of that? Uh, I'm not making this up. This is going to sound a little pious and overly spiritual, but I really thought that was the end of it. We didn't click. There were no sparks. It was just weird. When I dropped her off, she hustled. She was a, in a sorority and living in the sorority house at A&M, one of them, and just like hustled into the sorority house, the big door shut, and I was like, well, that's over. And about a week later, honestly, I was having my quiet time, and I felt like the Lord said, that is her. You need to go and ask her out again. And I remember saying to the Lord, she is never going to say yes after that disaster. And the Lord <laughs> said, go and ask her. And so I did and was as shocked as anyone when she said, okay. This is like the iron swimming, man. <laughs> <laughs> yes. If, if she says yes after that, it really is of the Lord. Well, I can't even tell you how weird the second date was. This was, this was totally the providence of God. I'd been in a relationship. It had not gone well. I was disillusioned and didn't, so I didn't really want to date again. And so on the second date, I actually brought a legal pad with a list of questions because I decided I'm not getting involved with someone to be surprised down the road. I'm going to get everything on the table up front. And so I went and got her again, took her to a coffee shop and just asked her every question in the book, but it was what she wanted and needed. And I didn't know it because she had grown up in a environment of tension uh-huh. where things weren't on the table. And she interpreted what I was doing as the answer to her prayers. Wow. So it was, anyway, I mean, I don't, I don't want to belabor it, make it sound overly spiritual, but it really was the providence of God. It is. It, really. It, it, well, it is the providence of God, whether we realize it at the moment or not. Yeah, you, that's you, right. You just, you just realize that's it. That's right. Well, that, you've been married how long? 20 years. We celebrated 20 years. And you have four children. We do. That's great. You know, when I, when I said her name and asked you about it, your eyes lit up. I love to see that in, in a man and especially in a pastor. Uh, how, does she, how does she help you serve as a pastor? Oh, man. I, I don't even know how to answer that question. Like, I literally could not do it without her. Yeah. Um, Isn't it great to be married to a woman of whom you're just a fan? Yeah, she's, she's uh-uh. literally my best friend. Mm-hmm. But I, I can honestly say 
I mean, pastor's wife is an occupation. It's a calling. Yes, it okay? is. I respect her as a pastor's wife as much as I respect any pastor I've ever met as a pastor. Like, yeah. she is gifted and talented and sincere and extraordinary in that calling and occupation. I literally re- like respect her as my peer, not just my wife. Yeah, I, I, I get it. I, I couldn't agree more. And she's an incredible Bible teacher, too. She's so good. She is so good. Uh, you were telling me she she taught a, like a 6 a.m. Bible study. Yeah, we're super passionate about marriage, parenting, sex. It's a big thing in this culture today in well, the sexual revolution. Right. The, the, the devil's crowd's talking about it a lot that's and right. giving the wrong view. We, we yeah, better right. give exactly. the biblical view. Absolutely. And she's uh, very good at talking to women about human sexuality. Very good. And so, and I think women are clamoring for it. Uh, Absolutely. And are. so she told the ladies of our church, I'm going to teach a class on sex uh, for women. Um, it's a class for women. Uh, and I'm going to do it on Tuesday mornings from six to seven. It's just four weeks. So it's not a long term commitment, four weeks. But I'm going to do it at a time where you can get up, come and get home or get to work. And uh, it was standing room only from 6 to 7 a.m. on Tuesday mornings. Yeah. What a great testimony of, of her willingness and also the respect of your your church for her the women in your church yeah would you know i would tell you nathan that the greatest source of credibility that i have outside of the scriptures themselves are is my relationship with my wife you you concur with that does that resonate with you yeah it resonates with god he said in first timothy four and five that one of the key ways we know someone's ready to lead the church family is they've proven they can lead their nuclear family. Like right. Ability to lead the nuclear family validates readiness in part to yeah. lead the church family. And so I think the condition of our wives and our relationship with them is what builds ethos in the congregation's yeah. mind towards us to listen to the sermons. Right. Apart from, you know, second to the word of God, of course, right. the scriptures stand alone in its authority. But after the scriptures, I agree with you. Pastor's wife is, it's going to make you or break you. It, it absolutely does. And it, if we're doing it right, you know, as Hebrews says, you consider the end of their faith, mm. uh, then our church members look at us and say, okay, they've got something that I want. I'm going to listen to this guy. Yes. I'm going to listen to this woman. And uh, there really is a team aspect to pastoring. Uh, I'm, I'm with you. I don't, I, I wouldn't know how to do it without Tanya. I just yeah, simply wouldn't right. know. I mean, well, I think one of the things the congregation doesn't see fully and I understand fully is they see the effect we've had on our wife as a right. pastor's wife. Like, okay, if I follow his leadership, I can see what happens when someone follows his leadership. Look at his wife. Like I, they have right. that. But I, I think what the congregation doesn't always see is that concept in Genesis where when God looked at Adam, he was already in his calling, farming, cultivating the garden. When God looked at him and said, it's not good for you to be alone. It, it wasn't just talking about companionship. It was also talking about his ability to fulfill his calling. That's a great point. It was not good for him to be able... He couldn't do it without Eve. He required her wisdom, her courage, her strength, her perspective. And I don't think our congregations see the role our wives have played in who we've become as much as they see the role we've played in who they are. And so our wives... Mm. Like, people don't understand the wisdom the pastor's wife has and the strength. I mean, if if you've got a senior pastor who's like a strong leader... 
people got to understand the wife is strong standing behind that man in her own right. That's right. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it, uh, troubles me whenever I see a pastor who does not value and honor his wife. Mm. Years ago, Tanya and I were with, uh, sort of a big name preacher, you know, TV, yeah. TV preacher kind of guy. And we went out to dinner with them and his wife was, she was deeply Southern and had something of a country accent kind of, and when and she was a delightful woman, but whenever she would talk and, he, and I could see, he thought she was going a little too long. He would just reach over and mm. put his hand on her leg and, and then we would see her just sort mm. of wilt. Deflate. Oh man. We, we both noted it. And later that night I, I looked at her, I said, I never want to devalue you like that. Yeah. Don't. Oh, and, and I was determined that I wanted to really uh, elevate and encourage my wife, and I see the same the same desire in you. Uh, yeah, certainly. B- because she's they, my equal. Like her absolutely. calling is to be pastor's absolutely. wife, and she's better at it than I am at my calling. Yeah. I re- literally respect her as my peer. Yeah, that's my and her calling. My testimony too. Uh, I thank you. Um, you mentioned that you mentioned the term expository preaching yes. when you talked about your church that's what you do oh is there any other way well uh, <laughs> uh yes uh, I, I would say there there are other ways people do it now whether or not it's effective for really growing the body in any depth maybe not that's but right. uh, uh so what's your commitment how do you do it what's it look like well i mean i preach through books of the bible okay so uh last two sundays ago i finished malachi and yesterday I started First Timothy. Okay. How, how long did it take you to go through Malachi? The four, nine sermons was a summer. Nine sermons. Four chapters of Malachi, it took you nine sermons. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there are only nine sermons in Malachi. I mean, you've got the opening, the closing, and then the, well, I mean, you, you could yeah. do eight. But, you know, the book's structured for nine, eight or nine sermons max. Yeah. Whereas Mark, prior to Malachi, was in Mark for 18 months. Uh-huh. You know. Um, so, anyway, I go through books of the Bible. I try to flip-flop genres. Well, first I do Old Testament, New Testament. Old Testament so I flip between the Old and New uh-huh. Testament. And then within that, I, I flip between genres. I want to make sure I cover, you know, right. law, prophecy, apocalyptic, gospels, wisdom, literature, all that. So um, we're in an epistle now. We need it. We haven't been in an epistle in a while. Have you done this all 17 years? Yes. Okay. Yes. How about how much of the Bible do you think you've preached through? About, about I was actually how many thinking books? about that last night on the flight up here. Uh I mean, 20-something. I've preached through 20-something books of the Bible because right. we have an evening service in uh-huh. which I used to preach almost all of those services, and so I would go through another book parallel to the one I was doing Sunday. Right. Now I'm just doing one at a time, so I don't, I'm not doing as many books of the Bible anymore, but that's how I got to 20. But I just worked my way through, uh, through the book. You know, one thing I found helpful for anyone interested is uh, before I start preaching through a book, I try to meet face-to-face with an expert on the book. Really? And I pay them. Face-to-face? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I got to this because before I try to start a book, I I immerse myself, obviously, in as many resources as I can. I want to master the book before I start preaching through it. Yeah. And so I was sitting there one day reading this critical commentary that was super helpful, but above my pay grade. And I thought, man, if I could talk to this person face-to-face, it would be helpful. And I just flipped to the front cover I didn't know who it was. I just happened to Google the name and I saw he was alive. I was like, I'm just going to go fly to where he is and meet with him. Called him up. 
And I said, I'll pay you by the hour to sit with me for four to six hours and just walk me through this book. And he was delighted. He had the gift of knowledge. As most preachers, what we have is the gift of wisdom. Uh-huh. But we require the person with the gift of knowledge. So he was so happy to share what he had mined from the book, knowing how it would be used. So he was delighted to do it, paid him by the hour. And when those six hours ended at his table, I knew that book backwards and forwards. That's fantastic. And, uh, so anyway, so I do that now. That really helps me tremendously. See, this is where I, I have the advantage of being the dean at, of the School of Theology <laughs> at Southern Seminary. I just walk down the hallway. Yeah, I just walk down the hallway and get to talk to these guys. You know, it's, it is a They're it is already a joy. being paid to me. And, and I do that. You know, what's funny is I do that. I talk to the, the expert in whatever yeah. I'm preaching, but I've never thought about it being a formal step like you've done. Uh well, uh, what's a what is the favorite series you've ever you've ever preached? Proverbs. You, Proverbs. Two ways to live. How, Loved it. Okay, how many sermons in Proverbs? You okay, know, what I did. So the first nine chapters, I I went section by section like an epistle, but chapter uh-huh. ten to thirty one it totally changes to it just does. the random bucket of nuggets. And so what I did for ten to thirty one uh, was I set I, I organized all of them into topics. And then just thought of the 14 to 17 topics I felt like my congregation really needed based on the pulse I have or where my church is. Yeah. So I preached section by section through the first nine chapters and then did 13 to 17 sermons based on certain topics. And I picked a primary anchor proverb to address that topic and did an expository sermon around that proverb, bringing in the other proverbs as supporting text. Sounds fantastic. So, Well, I didn't make that up. The person I met with told me to do that. <laughs> Well, so that, I don't want to take credit for it, but yeah. it was a great way to handle it. Yeah, it, that's a that is a great way to handle it. What's a what's a common mistake you see young preachers making? Anything that you see Preaching on the rise? Wise? Yeah, that you're or leadership wise. Preaching. Either one. What what what's on your well heart? preaching wise? I think the number one thing young pastors underestimate. I think, in fairness to them, it's just due to without a lot of experience, you can't properly value this. But they underestimate the authority and the power of the word of God. Mm-hmm. They underestimate what can really happen as a result of sustained expository preaching uh, year on I year. Agree. I mean, it is unbelievable what the word of God accomplishes. Yeah. They feel um, like they've got to have a program. They've got yes. to have, there's some secret out there, yes. you know, if I get this particular leadership key and all those are good things. I, yes, I really absolutely. don't want to denigrate right. any of those things. I, I want to grab any wisdom I can grab. But it is the preaching of the word that God blesses yes. and uses more than anything. Long term. You've got to have a long term view. That's right. And but I think young preachers really underestimate the sufficiency of scripture, the power in scripture. To what extent do you pray as you mm. prepare? Uh I mean, the way I work it into my preparation? Yeah. Just how, what it what does it look like? Uh do you just pray throughout you begin with prayer i mean how how is prayer part of your preparation okay well at the risk of sounding mystical uh i think before you can begin preparing for a sermon you have to seek the intimacy of the spirit or the filling of the spirit however you want to say it Uh not that i believe we can lose him he'll never forsake us never never leave us nor forsake us but we lose intimacy and regain it and lose it based on quenching great that's things right there's and, a, there's a reason there's a command to be yes. filled with the spirit yes exactly and you can be not obeying that command yes so what i do is before i start sermon prep 
which by the way is each morning of the week mm-hmm. I, I lock down mornings in the mornings. I do admin in the afternoon so the first thing i do during the morning sermon prep block of time is uh get out my bible i lay on my office floor um I mean, I hope I'm filled by the Spirit at that point because I've had my quiet time that morning earlier. But I've also since then gotten my kids to school, dealt with... So anyway, so I just lay down on my office floor with my Bible and I read and pray until I sense the Spirit arrive. That's the best way. You can tell He's there. Then I get up, sit down. Because if if I don't have the author to enlighten the eyes of my heart, I got nothing when I read His book. And I just pray, Lord. And here's, here's the thing. I think a sermon is more than teaching a passage. That's teaching. A sermon is a message from heaven yeah. to a particular audience That's on right. a particular occasion That's right. through a text. You're the shepherd. You're not merely commentator. That's it. Yeah. And I think if we're not filled with the Spirit, asking him as we prepare, now what is the message from this text for this audience on this occasion? We don't know who's going to be there, what they're going to be dealing with. He right. does. Right. We ought to trust that that message he's laying on our heart through that text is what's needed. Again, believing in the sufficiency of Scripture. Yeah. How much do you think about delivery? Is it something you're conscious of? Yes, yeah, like very. It you, is. You, uh, you work on delivery. I mean, it, you, it's you think very, about it? Yeah, I practice my sermon ahead of time. You do? Yeah, of course. Uh, in your study, yes. or do you go in the pulpit, or what? Where do you do? Sometimes, one or, one or the other. Okay. One or the other. Um, yeah, I mean. The delivery is as important as preparation. You can prepare the greatest sermon in the world and get in the way of yourself and uh-huh. the message in the pulpit. Yeah, that, that's right. I, I divide it up into three categories. What I call text, sermon, delivery. That's it. Those are the three parts. Yeah, and you can't afford to be good at two of those. That's right. You've got to go three for three. That's what you do. Now, we can argue that the text is the most important thing. Sure. But you can blow it. You know, you, yes. you can really be a great exegete. You can even write a great sermon, but if you're terrible at delivery, or if you're great at delivery, but it's a lousy sermon, you know, listen, it, you're, you're undermining yourself. You've got to go three for three. From like 2011 to 14, I was into triathlons. When I first started triathlons, I thought it was one sport. Then I got started training, and I realized I'm trying to be good at three things that I've got to link together. Right. I've got to be a really good swimmer, a really good biker, and a really good runner if I'm going to place in my age group. And preaching is a triathlon. Yeah, You've got to study an ancient text and get to, like, what, what is the point of that passage? Then you've got to bridge to today's context and figure out how to communicate it. Yeah. That's part two. And then you've got to deliver it. Right. And just like a triathlon, does it, I mean, if you're fast in the pool— and fast at the run, and you can't bike, don't even show up. That's right. Like, you're not going to finish. Yeah. So you got to go That's a great analogy. Three. Not one I will ever use because <laughs> it uh, has nothing to do with my life. But, but it does <laughs> speak to how as preachers, it does. as we try to work on our preaching in an yeah. ongoing way, you've got to make sure you're working on all three parts. Yeah, it's just not the kind of thing that old, out-of-shape guys <laughs> You'd be surprised. To hey, uh, I like to end every interview with what I call the twinkling of an eye around and just ask Okay. Fairly random, but quick questions. You can answer them as quickly, or if you want to go out a little bit on, you you feel free. Okay. All right, here we go. You ready? Ready. What's your favorite movie? Man on Fire. Uh, what kind of running shoe do you wear? A6 Nimbus. Uh, what's the strangest food you've ever eaten? Monkey. What's the longest sermon you've ever preached? How long was it? I'm so embarrassed. Uh, I think 53 minutes. Oh, that's that's nothing. <laughs> uh, what, what's your favorite genre to preach? 
epistle. Uh, what preachers, one or two, feed your soul? Who do you like to listen to? Chris Osborne, Stephen Smith, Josh Smith, Kevin Eckert. If, if you could do anything for the Lord and you could not fail, what would it be? I want to be the first person to take the gospel to an unreached people group. Man, that's a great, that's a great goal. Uh, if the Lord does not use you to do it, may he use up many that grow up under your ministry mm -hmm. to do it. And I pray that he multiplies you that way. Nathan, you're a dear friend. I admire you greatly. I thank God for you. It's been a joy to have you on uh, Pastor Well today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Loved it. Appreciate your ministry so much. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to Pastor Well. It's been a joy to have you today. I hope that you'll subscribe on YouTube or on your favorite podcast app, and we'll see you again next time on Pastor Well.